0: Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then both eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Special welcome to any guests who are with us for the first time. My name is Isaac, one of the pastors here. Let's pray. Father, I feel uniquely inadequate this morning to convey and to communicate the depth of what You've given to us in Your Word in this passage. I pray that Your Spirit would help me to speak clearly, to emphasize what should be emphasized. And I pray that Your Spirit would help each of us here receiving Your Word this morning. And I pray that Your Spirit would accomplish exactly what You intend in each of our hearts, to instruct us, to comfort us to bring correction and conviction, to bring direction. But most of all, Father, I pray that we would all, by Your Spirit, have the the flames of faith fanned in our hearts to see You as the faithful God that You are, and to see Your Word as good and true. In Jesus' name, amen. When we began this series in Genesis a few months ago, Kenny used the image of framing doctrine and hanging it on the walls of our hearts. I think it's a vivid image. My wife and I have lived in our home for 14 years. Now, this wouldn't have been true if you came over like a month after we moved in, but after 14 years, we have a lot of things hanging on our walls. Photos of our kids, of our family, of family members who have passed. Photos of things we've done, places we've gone, memories we've made, art we enjoy. If you look closely at the things hanging on our walls, you would, I think, learn a lot about who we are, where we've come from, what we value, how we live. Genesis 1-3 through is meant to function in this way, to frame some foundational truths about who God is, who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going so that we can understand how to make sense of this world and how to live rightly in it. And I think nowhere is that more true than in the passage we're looking at this morning. If the doctrine we are looking at today were a picture, it would not be the beautiful family photo hanging in your living room above your couch. It wouldn't be the photos of your best family memories kind of prominently displayed in your front hall. It wouldn't even probably be your child's crumpled artwork plastered on your kitchen fridge. It might be something like a photo of a relationship that ended badly, that you'd rather throw away or stick in a box in the attic and forget about altogether. But if we aren't willing to pull out this picture and look deeply at it, there is simply no way that we can understand who we are, where we've come from, why the world is the way that it is, and we can't truly understand God's plan of redemption that will begin unfolding just a few verses from where we stop and continue through every chapter in our Bibles up to the end. This morning we are looking at the doctrine of sin. And we will look at three penetrating observations that this passage gives us about the nature and function of of sin. There's a lot more than that. Unfortunately, I only have an hour and a half for this message. (laughs) I had five observations initially, so you're welcome. Three penetrating observations about the nature and function of sin, how it functioned in the very beginning, and how it functions in each of our lives today. If you're taking notes, you can write the three points down. Sin, number one, questions God's word. Number two, sin distorts God's character. Number three, sin rejects God's rule. Let's look first at how sin questions God's word, and this is coming straight from verses one through three. We, we are now walking down a path that will ultimately lead to the fall of humanity. Sin entering a perfect world in which it did not exist with devastating consequences. And what we see here in verse 1 is that the first step on this path begins with a question about God's Word. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, before we move on, I want to make a few comments about the serpent. Almost all of the theologians and commentators that I have read make a point to highlight the serpent here for several reasons. First, we understand this passage from, I mean, we understand this this, uh, reference to the serpent because of the future revelation of Scripture that Satan was speaking behind or through the serpent in some way, but the plain reading of the text clearly shows that this is meant to be understood as a real animal, not just a figurative uh, kind of symbol. We see plainly that the, the serpent is described as one of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, and not a snake, although that's the way it shows up in our children's storybook Bibles, because that comes later, the curse on the serpent. And it's not until almost the end of our Bible, Revelation 12, where we see a direct link made between the serpent and in the garden and Satan. Revelation 12, 9 says, and the great dragon, I'll mention that in a, in a minute, was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. So we understand that this is a, some sort of real animal. Second thing that stands out is the very vivid adjective that's used to describe the serpent. It says the serpent was more crafty, or we could understand that as more shrewd, more clever than any of the other animals that God had made. And we shouldn't understand this primarily as a negative description, because so far everything that God has made is good. So the original recipients of this writing would have understood that it, this was a real animal of some sort that approached Eve. And even though we clearly know from the full revelation of Scripture that it was ultimately Satan who is speaking through or influencing the serpent, it does raise some real perplexing questions. Were there dragons in the Garden of Eden? Didn't expect that. I don't know. In what sense did the serpent, this animal, actually speak to Eve, and why didn't she find that strange? What was Adam and Eve's relationship with the animals before the fall? I mean, we know today, like if, you've ha- if you have a dog, you know that you can communicate with that animal. You can say things to it, and it will respond to your words. It can communicate to you when it's hungry, or when it's scared, or when it's angry, when it's happy. And the scripture tells us that the serpent was more crafty, more clever than any of the other animals that God had made. We don't have time to explore all these questions. I just mentioned them to point out that there is way more going on here than you probably remember from your children's storybook Bible. The main point that we see here is that the path to the fall begins with the question about God's word. Did God actually say? Now, theologians have been divided over the centuries about the exact tone of that statement, of this question. Some would say that it carries a kind of sarcastic or sneering tone, something like if someone tells you a a crazy story about a conversation that they had or something they saw, and you said, wow, did he really say that? You aren't asking in that moment if it's factually correct. You're saying something like, wow, is he really that dumb? Or... That crazy or that oblivious that he would say something like that? That's the sarcastic, sneering tone that may be captured here. The other commentators will see this more as kind of a posturing of honest inquiry. Something like, now, why would God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? It's curious, isn't it? I mean, if everything God made is good, why would He keep something from you that might bring you pleasure? I don't know which is precisely correct. I think probably both possibilities are at work. Almost all commentators agree, though, that this question is not meant to challenge outright whether or not God actually said or gave this command. It's meant to plant a seed of doubt about God's motives for giving the command. And even more than that, it's meant to move Eve's mind and soul from a posture of joyful submission to God simply based on love and trust in His goodness to a position of questioning and ultimately judging based on her own standards and reason whether God's command is good. John Calvin in commenting on this passage says, "I have no doubt that the serpent urges the woman to seek out the cause, meaning why did God say this? Since otherwise he would not have been able to draw her away, draw away her mind from God. Very dangerous is the temptation." When it is suggested to us that God is not to be obeyed except so far as the reason of his command is apparent. We'll come back to this point at the end, but one thing that we see from this passage is that God doesn't always give us a full explanation for the commands that he calls us to obey. It is not our right as creatures to fully understand the purposes and motives of our Creator, and I say that knowing full well that for many of you and for myself, that rubs us the wrong way. And I believe this passage helps us understand why that is. But there are a few qualifications I want to give here. Part of the reason we recoil from the idea of obeying God's commands without fully understanding the reasons behind them is that this idea has been severely abused by people in positions of spiritual authority. Pastors, church leaders, fathers and mothers. Often starting, I think, from a place of good intention take principles that God has given in His Word and develop practices and applications around them, which isn't wrong. We should do that. The problem comes, though, when we attach the same level of authority to our human applications and principles that God has given in His Word, and we expect the same level of unquestioning obedience to our applications and principles that God has required of His direct commands. That's when things go downhill really fast. And people who genuinely desire to obey God and are looking to the trusted spiritual authorities in their life to help them understand what it means to obey God followed their commands as though they are equivalent to God's Word, even when it, though at times they feel unsettled about the fruit that's coming from them. And when they realize, often through painful experiences, that they were misled and that their unquestioning trust in God was taken advantage of, it's difficult to disentangle what about their Christian experience and relationship with God was genuine and what was misguided and distorted human application. And it all comes from the same root. It's the way that Satan loves to distort God's Word There is a kind of wrestling with the Bible and with truths about who God is that comes from a place of really deeply believing that God's Word is true, that the Bible is true, and God is trustworthy, even if I don't fully understand everything about it. That's a good and healthy kind of wrestling. And we should always be asking questions Asking the question, is what I'm doing, the decisions that I'm making for myself and my family, are they just based on what I think others are expecting of me? Or are they based on convictions that I hold because of what I see God has said in His Word, what I know of His character, and what His Spirit is doing in my conscience and how He's leading me? That's good and healthy kind of questioning. That's not what's happening here. We see in Eve's initial response in verses 2 and 3 that she initially seems to kind of push back at least a little bit on the insinuation of the serpent. She rightly says that God has provided for them abundantly, with every tree in the garden except one. So God hasn't given her a full explanation for why she should obey, but he's given her plenty and overwhelming reasons to obey for why he's trustworthy. She should have no reason to doubt God's goodness. She has no reason to question his faithfulness. But even though she can recite the command, she continues to entertain the question. Her curiosity is piqued, and there are signs that this question about the truthfulness and goodness of God's word is starting to fracture her trust. Kenny mentioned this a few weeks ago, but up until this point in Genesis, the primary, especially in Genesis 2, the primary name and, and word of, that's used to describe God is the term um, Yahweh Elohim. It's two Hebrew words that is translated in our Bible, Lord God. It is the personal and specific, proper name that God uses in his self-revelation to Moses and to Israel. But here, something changes. When the serpent speaks, he doesn't use that name. And when Eve responds, she doesn't use the personal name of God. She uses a general and generic name. So the trap has been set by, the question, by questioning the truthfulness and goodness of God's word. It doesn't start with a direct attack on the character of God. But it lays the groundwork for Eve's judgments about God to replace her trust in his goodness. Which brings us to verses 4 and 5 and our second point. Sin distorts God's character. Eve's response has shown that she's taken the bait. So now the assault begins. Verse 4: The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's goal now is clear. He is openly trying to displace God's rule in Eve's life by making her believe that she will be happier more free, more fulfilled if she's the one in charge rather than God. Sound familiar? To achieve this goal, Satan openly lies and distorts the character of God. First, he calls God a liar. You're not going to die. It's not true. God lied to you. Next, he accuses God of being a fragile egomaniac who's afraid that Adam and Eve will usurp his power and steal his glory. And finally, he accuses God of withholding good things from Adam and Eve out of fear and spite. And Eve, who has only ever known the unfiltered, unrestricted, unmediated, unmerited love and goodness and faithfulness of God, doesn't say a word in response. So, those lies lodge in her heart and then in Adam's, and they have stayed lodged in the heart of every human that has come since. Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist and author of the book The God Delusion, writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. You see what he's doing. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, on one level, this is a shocking statement just in its kind of extremity and vulgarity. But I don't share it as an example of how terrible those heathens are out there in the world and how our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. The reality is that this is nothing more than a slightly more verbose rendition of the lie that Eve believed. And the same lie lives in the heart of each one of us. So the trap has been set by questioning God's Word. The attack has been made by distorting God's character, and we know what happens next. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In light of the new these new questions that are running through her mind about the truth and goodness of God's word and the lies that she has started to believe about God's character, the fruit that once seemed dull and unappealing now looks interesting and exciting. And so she chooses to reject God's loving rule over her life in exchange for the promise of being her own God. And Adam, whom God had called to love and protect his wife as a servant leader, follows her example and rejects God's loving rule as well. Now, I want to pause here and make a few applications. There are two categories of people in the world. There are people that openly reject God's rule, and all of us at one time were in that category. These are people who reject religion in general and reject Jesus in particular. And there are a lot of reasons why they would claim that they reject Jesus, that they don't that they don't believe in Jesus and don't want to submit their lives to him. Some claim that they simply can't or don't believe in God. I don't think that's actually a very honest answer. Others claim that they don't like the teachings of this church, especially around sexuality, and gender, and other moral issues. I think that's a little bit more honest. Others point to terrible things that have been done in the name of Christianity and by people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and it's true that that's happened. Then, there are people who claim there's another category. There are people who claim to follow Jesus, And in countless small ways, and sometimes really big and terrible ways, don't live in a way that's consistent with with what they claim to believe. These are people who functionally reject God's rule. So there are people who openly reject God's rule, and there are people who functionally reject God's rule, and all of us are in one of these two categories, Because all of us have the same fundamental problem, sin. And that sin always functions in our lives in the same way. We question God's word. We distort God's character. We reject God's rule. And the first application that I want to make is related to evangelism and how we relate to unbelievers. People in that first category. People who don't claim to follow Jesus and don't express any desire to do so are already at the end of the progression. They've already rejected God's rule because that's the default position of every human heart apart from God's grace. But I think understanding this progression and actually working backwards through it can, be a, can function as a helpful evangelistic tool. Here's what I mean. This passage shows us that the root issue of every heart is a rejection of God's loving rule and this rejection is based on lies that, and distortions that we believe about God's character. So, in our interactions with unbelievers, we should be looking for opportunities and asking questions to uncover what they actually believe about God and why. See, the world loves to argue about issues, about sexuality and gender and abortion, and any other hot-button cultural issue. And those are important issues. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the importance of them. And the world is happy to point to very public failures of, the, of church leaders and historical Christianity. And part of the reason is that those issues keep God at a distance. They allow me to stay in the seat of judgment And unfortunately, I think we are often far too eager to jump straight into arguing those issues and defending our positions and telling people why they're wrong. Sometimes I think we're surprised that sinners are actually sinful. But if our desire is actually to help them see their need for a Savior… What could happen if rather than jumping straight into arguing issues, we ask questions that seek to understand what's actually at the root of what this person believes? What do they actually believe about God and why? Because we know from this passage that sexuality or abortion or any other issue of behavior and morality is not the root issue in their heart. The root issue is that they don't want God or anyone else telling them how to live. And they believe all sorts of lies about who God is to justify that position, whether they realize it or not. So by seeking to understand what they actually believe about who God is and why they believe that, we move the conversation from out there to in here. And we may find ourselves, I think, with opportunities to actually help them see by God's grace who he really is. Second application is for those who would claim to be followers of Jesus and desire to increasingly submit your lives to God's loving rule. I hope that's most of us here. This passage is meant to help us understand how sin and Satan function in our lives to draw us away from Christ and functionally reject God's rule. Let me give you an example A married man finds himself attracted to a female co-worker. He's a Christian. He knows that Jesus has said that even looking at a woman with lustful intent is equivalent to committing adultery with her. But this question comes to mind. Did Jesus really mean that? I mean, what harm is there in just entertaining the thought. It's not like I'm going to act on it. The trap has been set. So time passes, and he finds himself looking for more and more opportunities to spend time with the woman. He starts making intentional choices about when he comes into the office and when and where he eats lunch and which accounts he works on so that he can spend more time with her. You realize that they get along really well. They have a lot in common. He really enjoys spending time with her, and she seems to enjoy spending time with Him. Then he starts to have thoughts like this. If God really loved me, He'd want me to be happy, right? I mean, maybe God even like, brought this woman into my life because He knows I've been so happy and unhappy in my marriage. Or the flip side of that thought, why would God hold me hostage in this miserable marriage if he really loved me? You see what's happening. A question about the truth and goodness of God's clear command, a distortion of God's character, and the full rejection of God's rule is only an opportunity away. Tim Keller says, do you know why you're tempted? There would be no temptation unless underneath you already believed you can't trust God. Your heart is saying, if you obey, you won't be happy. The fact that Satan has destroyed our trust in the love of God is beneath everything else. Now, this is an extreme example, though maybe not irrelevant for some men and women here. There are a thousand smaller examples that we could look at, and although we don't always consciously realize it, if we were to work back from every intentional choice we've made to reject and disobey God's clear commands, we would find this progression at work. And one of the things that I hope you will take from this message is a deeper understanding of how sin functions in your heart and in the hearts of those around you so that by God's grace, We will see more clearly the dangers and devastation of sin. We will understand the tactics of the devil. We will flee from temptation at its first whispers. We will run to Christ as our only hope and help, and we will help each other to do that as well. Couldn't preach a message on sin without referencing John Owen. sin aims always at the utmost every time it rises up to tempt or entice might it have its own course it would go out to the utmost sin of that kind every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could every covetous desire would be oppression every thought of unbelief would be atheism might it grow to its head. We see so clearly from this passage that our enemy, the devil, will always, always, always lie about the real danger and consequences of sin. And he'll use every song and every movie and every TV show and every Instagram post and every TikTok video and any other resource at his disposal to pound that message into our minds every minute of every day. So we need God's word to help us see the depth and deceitfulness of sin in our own hearts and to understand the tactics of our enemy, the tactics he's been using since day one. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to appeal to anyone who is right now willingly running after things that you know God has forbidden. I'm not talking, I'm not talking to people who are wrestling and fighting and sometimes failing. That's all of us. I'm talking to anyone who is consciously rejecting God's loving rule and you know it by willingly running after things that you know God has forbidden. Please hear this as God's invitation to repent and return to his loving rule. God is good. He's only ever been good to you and he only desires good for you. And it's because he loves you so much that he warns you that continuing to chase after these things only leads to death. I felt like the Lord put this on my mind when we were singing this morning, when we were singing that last song. The story of humanity doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3. And your story doesn't end here. doesn't have to. God has made provision for our sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And whether, I'm not saying that there's no consequences, I'm not saying that the road of repentance will not be hard and painful, but it's a road that leads to life, That's what God has promised. And the road that you're on, while comfortable maybe now, does not lead to life. Run to Christ. And if you need help doing that, talk to me, talk to one of the pastors, talk to someone that you trust. There are people who will come alongside you on that road. Your story doesn't end, doesn't have to end here. Sin doesn't have to have the last word over your life. Before we close, I want to address one important question that I think is probably ringing in the ears of anyone who reads this passage. If God is sovereign, and we believe He is, why did He allow Adam and Eve to fall? You see the tension of the question, I'm sure. On the one hand, we believe that God is fully and perfectly sovereign over every aspect of reality, both what we see in this physical world and beyond in heavenly and spiritual realms. That means nothing happens apart from His active knowledge and permission On the other hand, if God knew the devastation and pain that would come from the fall, why would he allow it? And even more than that, if he could have prevented it, how can he hold us accountable for sin and the corruption that would spread to every human that would ever live, except one? This is a question that's captured the minds of theologians since the very beginning of Christianity, and it has led to many forms of heresy by those who would try to find a solution that may be satisfying to the human intellect, but is not consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And the first principle that I think we have to remember when approaching a question like this is something that we already discussed in the first point of the message God doesn't always give us a complete answer to the question of why. But he always gives us what we need to trust him. This means that we should be very clear on what the Bible has given us clear answers about and we should not try to create certainty where the Bible hasn't given it to us. When we don't see clearly why, we trust who. Or to say it in a way that Kenny has say, said it before, when we can't trace God's hand, we trust his heart. So there are a few truths that the Bible is very clear about. Number one, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin or cause anyone to sin. James 1.3 Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God did not cause Adam and Eve to sin, and he didn't set them up for failure by tempting them to sin or putting them in a situation that they were destined to sin. Number two, God wasn't surprised by the fall. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. We could look at many passages, but this is one that's very clear. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes." One false teaching that seeks to try and reconcile this tension of God's sovereignty and our free will is a heresy called openness theology. Very simply, it's the idea that God doesn't actually know the end from the beginning, the way that Isaiah Isaiah 46 said, that he is responding in real time to the events of uh, history and to people's choices. And the, the purpose of this is to try and Uh, remove any responsibility from God for knowingly allowing the fall to happen. This false teaching elevates human reason over the clear teaching of Scripture and totally distorts the character and attributes of God. Number three, humans are morally responsible and accountable for our sin. Romans 1, among other places, makes it very clear that we really do have agency to choose whether we will obey God or not. And God has revealed enough knowledge about himself that we should, the right response of what God has revealed to us would be to joyfully submit to him. But instead, all of us have consciously and willfully rebelled against him, and as a result, we are justly deserving of his wrath. The Bible consistently holds up these two tensions of God's sovereignty and human free will and responsibility as both true and not inconsistent. And although we have a hard time making them fit perfectly together, we trust that God doesn't have a hard time doing that. Number four, God didn't need sin to increase his glory. This argument might suggest that God somehow needed sin because His glory would somehow be lacking without the work of redemption and restoration. Now, there are a number of passages that we could point to here, but the clear teaching of Scripture is that God doesn't do anything out of need. We talked about this when we were talking about creation. God is eternally and infinitely self-sufficient. His attributes and his glory are perfect and infinite. He lacks nothing and he needs nothing. But to say that God needed sin to increase his glory is not the same thing as saying God chose to allow sin to display his glory. And this is where theologians, at least the theologians that I respect, have tended to lean on this question. God's glory can't be increased because all of His attributes are perfect and infinite. But His infinite glory can be more clearly displayed. If we believe that God truly is sovereign and truly is good, we must believe that He had good reasons for allowing something even as devastating as the fall. And if, in God's perfect wisdom, it may be that the world, a world with no fall and no redemption and salvation, while very good, displays his glory less clearly than a world with a terrible fall, but a glorious salvation, and redemption. Let me say that again because I didn't say it very clearly the first time. In God's perfect wisdom, it may well be that a world with no fall and no redemption and salvation, while very good, because that's what God said when he created it, displays his glory less clearly than a world with a terrible fall but a glorious redemption, and salvation. And friends, that's our hope. A Savior. We don't see it yet in this passage, but it's coming. A Savior who will crush the head of the serpent, who will break the power of sin over our lives, who will cover our shame who will die the death that we rightly deserved, who will give us new life, who will banish sin and death from the face of creation, never to be seen again, and restore all things that were broken and corrupted by the fall. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity and the depth and the simplicity and the overwhelming, insearchable wisdom of your word. Thank you that you haven't left us alone in this world to figure things out. You've given us everything that we need in your word, and you've given us even more than that yourself. You've given us your spirit to help understand your word and to have the power that we need to live lives of obedience to you because of all that you've done for us and for your glory. And I pray, Father, that your word would accomplish, as I did at the beginning, that it would accomplish exactly what each of us needs this morning that it would feed us and strengthen us, that it would bring correction and conviction where it's needed, and ultimately that it would draw us to you as our great God and Savior, the one who's always been faithful, who's always been good, who's always trustworthy, and who only desires good for us. I pray that you would help us to live lives of joyful obedience for your glory because of all that you've done for us in Jesus. Amen.